0: Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Please stand with me. I would just like to begin by saying, in defense of myself yesterday for the one call, uh, this church has driven me crazy, so it's really your fault. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And uh, go down to verse 8. Bible says, David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look. This day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Now one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet yeah, you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hands shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hands shall not be against you. And whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you for the good that you have shown to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Lord, it has been such a great morning so far, Father, just as we've had a chance to gather together and worship and fellowship and love one another, now we turn to your scripture and we pray, Lord, that it does the thing that we ask it to do every Sunday, that it reaches down into our hearts and changes us and makes us a little bit more like your son. Do that today, Lord, wherever we are, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A young man named John received a parrot as a gift. The parrot had a bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. John tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, playing soft music, and anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, John got fed up, and he yelled at the parrot. The parrot cursed back at him. John shook the parrot, and the parrot got even angrier and even ruder. John, in desperation, threw up his hands and said, All right, Mr. Potty Mouth, you've just bought yourself five minutes in time out. So he grabs the bird, and he throws him into the freezer. Now, for about 90 seconds, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed, and suddenly there was total quiet, and nothing was heard for over a minute. Fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, John quickly opened the door of the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out into John's outstretched arms and said with the utmost civility, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my uncouth and unforgivable behavior. Well, John was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude. As he was about to ask the parrot what had caused such a dramatic change in his behavior, the bird continued, I have but one question, sir. Please tell me what the turkey did. (laughs) In biblical vernacular, that parent exhibited what is commonly called repentance. And that is part of what we'll be looking at this morning. If you remember from last week, we left our story with David in an act of mercy cutting off a piece of Saul's robe Instead of killing Saul. And this is where we'll pick up our story this morning. Verse 8, please. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look. This day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my, my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, No one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life, to take it Well, when Saul was far enough from the cave for David to think it was safe David leaves the cave and then calls out to him and by using the title my lord the king and bowing to the earth David emphasized what he had earlier said to his men and let Saul know that he indeed was not a rebel he let the king live and told the king that after he left the cave he says look Just as easily as I'm holding this corner of your robe, I could be holding your head. The civility and respect that David speaks to Saul with are truly remarkable. I wonder if I would be so gracious if I was addressing someone who had treated me in the despicable ways in which Saul had treated David. Now, in Acts chapter 7, there is a man named Stephen that is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is about to die from the stones they are getting ready to throw at him. This is what the Bible says about his gracious tongue. Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rang down, Stephen prayed, Master, Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. Those were his last words, and then he died. People come to me sometimes and they ask, how do I know that I am saved? How do I know that the Holy Spirit is truly Living within me. One of the surefire ways to know is by listening to your own speech. Do you have a gracious tongue like Stephen and David? Do we have a tongue that lifts people up, or do we have a spiteful tongue that tears people down? When you can find gracious words even for your enemy, you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, no one had a more gracious tongue than Jesus himself. This is Luke 4.22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. I love that phrase. The gracious words that were falling from his lips. I wouldn't mind that on my tombstone. Right under the words... I told you I was sick. Verse 12, please. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David says, look, man, I'll just let the Lord judge between us in determining who is right and who is wrong in this circumstance. That is such good advice. If we could only come to the place where we would allow God to handle our enemies. But as a rule, we want to take care of them ourselves, not realizing that the Lord can always do a much better job. Now, in this remarkable episode, we have been given just a glimpse into the answer about why David's kingdom was not established quickly and painlessly. Quick and painless is the way that we humans, like most things, to be achieved in life. Now, the men in the cave wanted David to take the opportunity that had so unexpectedly came to him. But his refusal to do so is an astonishing insight, namely, that God's kingdom is God's kingdom. It cannot be taken by human power. David then, in verse 13, quotes a familiar proverb to prove his point. Wickedness proceeds from the wicked which simply means the character is revealed by conduct. Now, the obvious implication of that proverb is that Saul had acted wickedly because he was wicked. But David quickly deflected that implication by by applying the proverb positively to himself. If David was wicked, as Saul seemed to believe, he would have done the wicked thing and lifted his hand against the king. David says, Saul... You're wasting your time chasing the likes of me. A businessman referring to a friend who most who had spent most of his time and energy pursuing an insignificant matter said of this man, He reminds me of a bulldog chasing a train. What's he going to do with it even if he does catch it? Now that encapsulates King Saul's attitude at this time. And I love the humility of David In verse 14. Now remember, this is the guy that Samuel has anointed to be the next king of Israel. This is the guy who bought and who fought and defeated a giant that no other man in Israel wanted any part of. This is the guy who had all the women singing songs about him. Now those kind of things would cause most people's heads to swell. Until they exploded. And why didn't David say what could have been on his mind? I can imagine him thinking Saul, you reckless fool. You are the sorriest excuse for a king this world has ever seen. Because you are so ignorant and impulsive, Samuel has anointed me to replace you. That's right, I'm going to take your job. How do you like those apples? And I'm not only going to take your job, the Lord is going to establish my throne forever. Some of the prophets even think the Messiah is going to come from my bloodline. What do you think about that, Buster? And by the way, Saul, does it bother you that the women now line up to kiss me on the cheek? Your days are numbered, brother, and you are very lucky that I just didn't kill you when we were in the cave. Oh, man. That would have felt so good rolling off of David's tongue, I bet. And his flesh would surely have applauded. But instead, when David was being attacked, he lowered himself and said, You are my Lord, the King. I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. You're the Lord's anointed, while I am simply nothing. You know, it's funny, when the Holy Spirit fills your heart, some of the craziest things will begin to spill from your mouth when you're in the wrong. Little phrases like, I am sorry, or you were right, or can we please forget that this ever happened. Now, does David's godly patience and restraint in the cave remind you of someone else? The Bible says, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's 1 Peter 2.22. To have Jesus as our king calls for godly patience and restraint like he had. It's a long and difficult journey to the kingdom of heaven. And Peter tells us that Jesus left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. And behind the example of Jesus is the example of David. David had won many battles, but one of the greatest victories I think he ever had occurred in that cave when he restrained himself and his men from killing King Saul. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. But what does David compare himself to in relation to King Saul? He says, I'm just a dead dog. No, wait, that's too lofty a title. I'm just the flea on a dead dog. It's hard to get any lower than that, unless you want to say, I'm just the pimple on the flea of a dead dog. I'm not sure if please have pimples, but there's a song idea for you if Roy was here. So we see that when we take things into our own hands, we're no longer walking by faith and we're no longer trusting the Lord. What we're really saying is, Lord, we cannot trust you to handle this the way we want it handled, so we're going to do it ourselves instead. David, however, is going to let God handle King Saul. Even though at this particular time in David's life, it is very difficult. But as we said last week, he refuses to kill the king in a moment of instant gratification. He is willing to wait on the Lord's timing. This is such a key component of the Christian life. That is to say, God always gives his best to those who are willing to wait for it. A great example can be found in John chapter 2. Jesus had been invited to a wedding, but during the wedding they ran out of wine, which was a serious embarrassment for the host. Mary tells them to go tell Jesus about their problem. Good advice for any problem, as a side note. And so Jesus tells them to fill up six water pots full of water and then take them to the master of the wedding. I'll let John continue from here. This is John 2 9. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him Every man serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine. Until now. But Jesus didn't change the water into Mad Dog 2020. I'm just seeing who my audience is this morning. Instead of Boone's Farm, he changes it into some fine French chablis. You know the kind where you take a sip and you slosh it around your mouth and you spit it out and throw your glass against the wall. Actually, I'm not sure if you're supposed to throw your glass against the wall. My wine tasting etiquette is a little suspect here. Forget that last part if you're taking notes. Let's get back to the Bible. You're thinking, yes, please. In our account in John 2, this causes the head waiter to say to the bridegroom, every man serves the good wine first. Then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Basically, what the head waiter is saying is, you have saved the best for last. So too with the Christian life. I've learned in my walk with God that if your integrity can be bought, Satan will find a way to always pay that price. We need to realize that Satan is the master of instant gratification. If it feels good, do it. But the payoff for the Christian isn't in this life primarily. It isn't the life to come. And that is one of the main differences between God and Satan. Satan will give you what you think is the good stuff, and then later he will give you the poison, whereas God always will save the best for last. So Satan will use temptations to try to get us to satisfy our flesh every time we feel an urge. But the Bible teaches that wise is the man, and prudent is the woman who will always wait on the Lord, knowing that he will truly give us the good and the best things. And not only that, there will be no guilt attached to it if we will just wait on him and his goodness. Verse 16. So it was, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, "'Is this your voice, my son David?' And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you for the good for what you have done to me this day. Well... It's about time, Saul. Here we see Saul finally apologizing with loud cries and weeping. Surely with all these theatrics, Saul has finally, truly repented. But he hasn't. You only have to read a little ahead in chapter 26, and you'll find Saul once again chasing David. Now, in this, Saul describes three levels of life. The divine level, where we return good for evil. The human level, where we return good for good and evil for evil. And then the demonic level, where we return evil for good. So what is the deal, then, here with Saul in verse 16? To get to the answer, we need to look at a New Testament passage The Bible says that there are two different types of sorrow. Now, Paul has had to write a letter to the Corinthian church in order to correct some bad behavior, but he wants them to know that he did it purely out of love and concern for them. This is 2 Corinthians 2.10. It says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world... Produces only death. Well, what's the difference? Well, there is a sorrow that Saul is experiencing. He is very, very sorry here, but it is what is called a worldly sorrow. You see, there is a sorrow that I can have over a wasted life, there is a sorrow that I can have over making wrong decisions. There is a sorrow over dealing not with my sin, but with the consequences of my sin. Now, the majority of people in prison exhibit this type of sorrow. They may be very sorry for their crimes, but they are sorry only because those crimes have caused them to be incarcerated. Now, in contrast to that, a godly sorrow is a sorrow that always leads to repentance. It's when we say, God, I am sorry for my sin. But not only that, I am sorry enough to change the direction that I am going and start doing things your way instead. Think of the prodigal son. Eventually, he runs out of money. And then suddenly, at the same time, he runs out of all those friends who helped him spend that money. And as such... He is extremely sorry for the way that his life has turned out. That's worldly sorrow, which we could simply define as being sorry for your stupidity. But what does the prodigal do? He extracts himself from the pig slop he is standing in, and he slowly makes his way home back to the father. That is true sorrow and repentance being sorry enough to change your behavior and go back home. Now, the tricky part in all this concerning Saul is Saul may have been very sincere at this point. He may have even had great intentions about changing. The problem, however, and the component that he's not factored in, is the flesh. You see, lots of people make promises of reformation. They attend 12 step programs, make appointments at counseling clinics, or write inspiring words to tape to their mirror. But the reality is, although the spirit may be willing, the flesh is still very weak. Therefore, the issue isn't reformation, the issue is regeneration or transformation. We've got to be born again. Without me, You can do nothing, Jesus said. No matter how good the program is, no matter how sincere the people might be, no matter how hard one tries, the flesh ultimately will well up again. Now, Saul may have been sincere at this point. In fact, I think that he was. But he lacked the ability to keep his word. He was no longer walking with the Lord, and therefore, no longer drawing strength from the Lord. Thus, even though he may have been sincere, he was unable to control his flesh. Verse 20, please. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, was Saul saying this because of the shock of how close he had been to death? Or was it the stabbing pain of an accusing conscience? Saul had much innocent blood on his hands from his hatred of David. Was it the realization at last that he could not stop this man from becoming king no matter what he did? Or was it even all these things together? We notice, though, that this acknowledgment was not dragged out of Saul with a sword blade at his throat. It was forced out of Saul by David's righteousness and his mercy. So there remained only one more thing for Saul to say. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. What is Saul saying? Please do not cut off anything more than my robe that you hold in, my, in your hand. Look at verse 22. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. I wonder why, after all this crying and apologizing, that David just doesn't walk up to Saul, do a fist bump, and then everyone go back home with Saul all happy. Well, actually, I don't wonder why. I know why. David isn't convinced that this truce from Saul is going to last. And so the wisest thing to do, then, is to just part company. And sometimes that is the wisest and most godly thing That a Christian can do. Saul went back home to Gibeah, but in spite of his tears and his emotional speech, he took up again his pursuit of David. A reporter was interviewing a man on his 100th birthday and asked, What are you the most proud of? Well, said the old man, pondering the question, I don't have an enemy in the world. That's quite an achievement, said the reporter. Yep, added the old man, I've outlived every last one of them. (laughs) Now, not many of us can get through life without collecting an enemy or two. I mean, you try your best to get along with everybody, but some people simply just won't cooperate. Misunderstandings, miscommunications, and bad luck can put us at odds with others. And some people just don't plain old like you. And what's more, they never will like you. It's been asked if a woman should leave her husband if he abuses her. Well, the Bible doesn't address that, but David's situation is proof to me that God's people are not required to remain in dangerous and life-threatening situations. If a woman's life is in danger or her children's lives are in danger, that woman needs to leave. Scripture does not require that a woman live in that kind of situation. So what does a Christian do in such circumstances when you try your best, and yet people simply do not like you? Romans 12.18 says, As much as it is possible with you, live in peace with everyone. We might as well face the facts that we're not going to get along with everybody no matter how hard we may try. There are Christians who are crushed because not everyone likes them. And so they bend over backwards and they compromise their position and lose their self-respect just to try to bring about some type of false harmony. But we have to be realistic in this life. Some conflicts are inevitable and we shouldn't be afraid of them. Even Jesus wasn't loved by everyone. He had enemies. If you recall, they crucified him. We just have to make sure that we're not the one responsible for the conflict. Don't deliberately be controversial. Don't deliberately antagonize other people. If you have to, bite your lip or swallow your pride. Be willing to be humble to keep the peace. And who knows? Maybe the Holy Spirit may use that to reveal Christ to others. In closing, a Christian lady owned two chickens that got out of their coop and busied themselves in the garden of her ill-tempered neighbor. The man caught the hens, wrung their necks, and then threw them back over the fence. Well, naturally, the woman was upset, but she didn't get angry and rush over and scream at the man. Instead, she took the birds, dressed them out, and prepared two chicken pot pies. Then she delivered one of the pot pies to the man. She apologized for not being more careful about keeping her chickens in her own yard. Her children, expecting an angry scene, hid behind a bush to to see the man's face and hear what he said. But he was absolutely speechless. That chicken pot pie and that apology filled him with a sense of burning shame. But she wasn't trying to get even. Her motive in returning good for evil was to show her neighbor true Christian love and maybe even bring about a change of heart. So we know that communication is necessary if we want to reach our enemy. Are you willing to reach out to your enemies and cooperate? Or would you rather let your wounds fester and grow worse? Could we even do something like that? Well, with God's help, we all can. God can help us defeat our enemies by communicating and loving them, not in anger and pride, but in a sense of humility and Christian love. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. But neither is it impossible. I dare us to try it. We may be surprised by the results. And, Lord, we know that doing things your way is always the best way. But sometimes, Lord, it seems to be the hardest way. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would enable us to do these things. Open our eyes and let us see things in our lives, Lord, that you would have us to change. For we know, Lord, that is the best way to live.